As we have faced the pandemic and rising levels of pain and grief, suicide numbers have been on the rise. The pain of those who struggle with suicidal thoughts, as well as those who face the suffering of loss to suicide, are deep and intense. And the impact isn't limited to emotions alone. Grief can affect every aspect of our lives. Join me in the land down under as I speak with my client, Judith Field, a public speaking coach, about how grief work helped her clean up not only her mental space and her emotional space, but her physical surroundings as well. Welcome to another episode of the Share Your Stories series. This is a podcast experience where we get to explore humanity one heart at a time. I am your host, Jenny Diltz, and I'm the founder of Grieving Coach. I help people convert grief into power. This event is dedicated to all who have been affected by suicide in life and in death. If you feel inclined to make a donation to keep events like these going in the future, you can follow the link in the show notes. Today, I have a very special guest on the show, a woman who is full of life and spunk, and she loves the color purple. Judith Field is a public speaking coach from Melbourne, Australia, whose husband died by suicide. I connected with Judith through LinkedIn and was intrigued by her story. Since then, we have had numerous conversations, and I have enjoyed every one of them. I have learned so much for my own life from her as a public speaking tutor and also as a woman with impeccable memory and an incredible sense of adventure. Judith, it's a pleasure to have you on my show today. Thank you. And what a lovely introduction. I love being labeled as someone who's adventuresome and purple and with an impeccable memory. So perhaps they'll put that on my gravestone when I die. Nice. Um, because we're going to be underground much, much longer than we're on top. And when we go, all that's really left of us are those around us who we left a legacy to of what we stood for um, perhaps our material things that in my children's case, they're going to probably curse and wonder what to do with because I have so much stuff you can just see from behind me. And we have the stories. And Jenny, you gave me a choice about whether to mention that I have done eight counselling sessions, but it's going to be very important to my story to mention that straight off. Because I didn't join LinkedIn to deal with my grief. I joined LinkedIn to build my business and to establish a network of like-minded people. And LinkedIn has been a little bit different from what I expected. I connected with you and I haven't regretted it for a moment. In fact, on the contrary... The two things that stand out from our time together are that you're clearing my mind and with my declutterer, I'm de clearing the physical space around me. Mm -hmm. Just to fill in 
my life story in less than five minutes. I'm not only Australian, but I'm fourth generation Australian on my father's side. And we have been in Australia since about 1853. And on my mum's side, I'm second generation Australian. We're Jewish, we're European in our DNA, and we're very faithful and loyal to Australia and very grateful for Australia because we're virtually covert free, except that Melbourne's in a one-week lockdown because we've had 15 cases. So compared to America and India particularly, we're lucky. Mm-hmm. And the place I want to start with my story is my parents because I think that they brought the three of us up, their three children, I'm the youngest of three, two older boys, with a lot of optimism and gratefulness. And for that, I can't help but see that there is hope, that there is a future. So as far as suicide, your focus to prevent as much as possible, although I have suffered from my husband's suicide back in 1994, my first Mr. Feel, and I've lost my parents who were in their late 80s and early 90s when they died, and my both brothers in their early 70s or late, you know, very close to 70, and now I'm 74, I'm always looking at the bright side of things. I'm always hopeful that things will get better. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example of that is that my current Mr. Field, who I've been married to for, uh, for 20 years plus, um, has Parkinson's, arthritis, depression, blood disease, and I'm optimistic that he'll have still a quality of life thanks to the government package, aged care package. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of help. He's in the, um, he has carers come five days a week to help him shower and dress. He has access to activities most of which is shut down for this week, but he's able to go to physio and have it all paid for. Of course, I pay a daily fee, and because I still work hard and I've invested, I pay the highest fee, but there's almost no resentment. I say almost because now and again I get a little bit bad-tempered about the fact that I do virtually everything, Um, all the bills, all the meals, it was a bit of help from the chef, uh, all the cleaning up, all the groceries, all the maintenance, all the activities. I mm-hmm. initiate all his activities and I make sure he gets the best care and I keep on top of his tablets. Once a month I need to go to the public hospital and get tablets for his blood disease in his bones and that's been for four years, once a month, and then seeing the doctor making sure that his tablets, that he's up to date. So just to give you a thumbnail background of me, not only Jewish, Australian, European and feminist, but I fell into teaching 
almost by accident and then fell in love with it. So I taught in our state public system for 15 years and had huge seniority. Very quickly, I seemed to be a natural leader, <laughs> charismatic. But I absolutely respect and adore children and teenagers, and they sense it. They mm -hmm. sense that I like them and yet I'm professional. And now, since 2004, having had an illustrious career in teaching privately and helped found a school and all that rubbish, I set up Direct Speech, which is a company to teach public speaking in schools and in corporates, short courses, one-on-ones, and I've written a book called Speech Matters. And uh, seeing this is all about your business, I'll just say if any of your watchers would like to check me out, it's www.directspeech.com.au. So the business grew. I started at the age of 58 and I had some huge clients, education department, car companies, the Department of Human Services and lots of schools. I'm in 160. And I particularly am proud of that because my first husband, David Field, was my soulmate. We met in Israel at 12 o'clock on the 22nd of January, 1970, outside the dining room. There's my lovely memory. And it was like instant love for both of us. We were virtually inseparable. And then we went to England together and I met his widowed mum, who was very cloyy and loving and his brother, who I'm very close to, who's four years younger than him and four months younger than me. And we're still very close. He's in Manchester now. David and I got married. Uh, I worked for seven or eight years. He went to university and became a social worker. And so we went from sort of two incomes to one to virtually none. And yet I tutored all the way through with little Gabby on my knee and him being the house husband for a while and studying. And then when he became a social worker, he worked for a good 10 years, started his master's, turned it into his PhD. And five years before he committed suicide, everything fell apart for him. Mm -hmm. uh, people published his thesis virtually. He was retrenched. His depression, which had been underlying his gorgeous, intelligent, articulate personality, came up very strongly. And despite the fact that he was having counselling and a psychiatrist for 10 years, on the 17th of August, 94, he committed suicide in the car at home and said goodbye to me just before he did it. So I came home and came home with a girlfriend and found him. And then I needed to bring up a fairly grieving and confused and anxious pair of teenagers. My daughter was 16 and doing nearly her final year of schooling. Mm -hmm. And um, my boy was 14, pubic and confused and I think very angry. So even though we had trauma counselling, and even though I've had help ever since, 
the truth is that I haven't really dealt with my grief. The closest I got to it was about four years later when I went round Australia with another Judy and we went in a camper van and I took one book with me, which was Forgiveness and Other Something or Other. You probably know that book, Jenny. Um, I think it's called Forgiveness and Other Forms of Something. And on the trip, Judith and I would share everything, the driving. We got on brilliantly. And I would talk about David a lot and she would mm-hmm. listen. Yeah. And sometimes I'd sit in the passenger seat crying and she would listen. And other than that longish time together without children, without anything interfering us in 99 and travelling around this glorious country of Australia, we came back and I didn't really deal with it in any organised way. I've had counselling through the government. I got counselling when Alex was diagnosed with Parkinson's because suddenly I realised that I wasn't just a wife, I was also a carer. Mm -hmm. He's also lost a lot of people. His father died when he was 15, his mother when he was 19. He's thought he was an only child, but in fact he's had um, several half-sisters, two of them, and he's met um, both of them, but he also uh, has known grief. His daughter committed suicide at 19. Alex used to be very talkative, very charismatic. He's very handsome. Mm -hmm. And even though he's not my soulmate, we were very suitable. Both my husband's Jewish and Alex was the president of his synagogue early on, then the past president. And then when the depression hit in 2007, when he was retrenched, I then was dealing with a second Mr. Field who suffered from depression. But the one thing I've avoided talking about, and I want to finish with, with my background, my two children, because neither of them are really in a happy, happy place. My daughter married an Israeli, very intelligent, very orthodox, and they have three children. The oldest is 12, nine-year-old boy, seven-year-old girl. But the boy is on the autism spectrum, not, not um, like, you know, it's a spectrum. So he's not, he's functioning, he's at school, mm-hmm. he's very obsessed with computers and screens, like a lot of kids, but more so. And he has a few um, temper problems. But his father, who's very intelligent, I'm fairly sure is also on the spectrum. And he's good at getting jobs, but he's not good at holding them. Mm -hmm. And the marriage, to put it sort of like publicly, is not all going smoothly. However, almost a year ago on July the 29th, my son, who had just turned 40 the week before, who is also like my daughter, good-looking, charismatic, articulate, intelligent, cheeky, hedonistic, had become, after going to live in Sydney and 
working in IT because they both finished school. They both went to university after their dad committed suicide. But Noam lost his moral compass way back then and already at 15 was up at the children's court for minor drug taking, for stealing cards, just for being pretty naughty and rebellious. Mm-hmm. However, he managed to not only finish school and university, he then, after being in Sydney for about two years, went back to university and became a Chinese medicine acupuncturist who's a healer. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Only he never stopped dabbling in drug selling. And none of us approved. None of us liked it. He has now the most wonderful girlfriend who, just to put labels on her, is a Chinese-only child in Hong Kong, academic, PhD in architecture, and has won international prizes, brilliant cook, the most wonderful person. And she is still hanging on and helping my son because he is in prison waiting trial on July the 2nd. He's going to plead guilty to having commercial quantities of drugs and he will get anywhere from five years to 15. But he'll also, maybe if he gets that minimum one, if we're very lucky and the judge is compassionate, he'll also get the year that he's been in prison plus the fact that he's got circumstances like we think he's on the spectrum and that he made bad choices. He's not a bad boy. So between losing all my immediate family, my husband to suicide, having a depressed and sick husband, having a daughter whose marriage is tricky and a son who's in prison, you'd think that I would be quite depressed and pessimistic myself yeah and I just want to finish with why I'm not one is that Noam absolutely has learned his lessons already and Uh because he has he wishes he could get out now but it ain't going to happen he is now much more thoughtful compassionate grateful understands how much his family and uncle and friends give him unconditional love and particularly his mother who's paying huge amounts of money to solicitors to help him get the best trial and the best result that we can although there's no guarantee of that at all so that took a bit longer than five minutes but you actually now know I'm working full-time I tutor virtually every night from about four till nine o'clock and I love life even though we're locked down right this week. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's amazing to see your humor still and your love of life still with everything that's gone on. So in the beginning of your grief journey, you said that you compartmentalized your grief, right? How did that allow you to show up more fully in your business? It allows me to show up fully in everything. By compartmentalising, 
now that I'm talking to you and anyone who is able to watch this, I am fully focused. I'm aware of my puppies paying outside. I'm aware of my husband gone back to bed. I'm aware that my shoulders are a bit cold. But my mind is focused on what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, uh-huh. trying to make sure I don't fill it with too much waffle and that I answer your questions. So the ability to compartmentalise, I've come to appreciate because I went back to work two weeks after David died and I walked down the corridor smiling and I went into my classes and I went into meetings and I went into everything I did and the housework and having borders and shopping at 1 1 a.m. in the morning by just compartmentalising. So I'd get up Monday, Wednesday, Friday and go swimming at the school's pool and teach all day, come home with my children who both by that time went to the school, get dinner ready, tutor, make sure that they'd got any help they needed and then either relax and sit by my fire and read or watch television or go shopping at, as I said, one o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then I'd wake up refreshed the next morning and off I'd go again. So that ability to focus on what's the job in front of you is an asset that I absolutely appreciate. And that way, when I'm in a situation with a client or with my work, I'm totally focused on them because my job as a public speaking teacher is to listen to what my clients need, to listen to the way they talk and the way they use their voice and their body and to give them the best guidance to improve and to get rid of their own fears. One of the things that I haven't mentioned that absolutely helped me was becoming a master practitioner in NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Mm -hmm. And I did that originally to help people, I thought, with their fears because it's the most wonderful thing because it deals with the subconscious and how 90% of what we do and think is subconscious Mm -hmm. and to allow me to tap in to people's subconscious and help them shift their limiting beliefs. And, of course, I had limiting beliefs. Um, How dare I go into business all by myself at the age of 58, never having run a business before? How dare I contact schools without having five degrees in public speaking? Well, the answer is because you don't necessarily need to know everything or be good at everything before you do anything. There Uh comes a point where you have to jump in and just learn about business, learn about sending invoices, learn about networking, learn about yourself and focus on what you want to give others, which is the best service, the best quality that you can possibly give. So the funnel, both when you're speaking and when you're in business, needs to be what's in it for them, with them, what's in it for them. We've talked about how compartmentalizing your grief was an asset to you and was very advantageous in helping you focus on your work and focus and task manage all the things that you were juggling. Were there ways that compartmentalizing kept you from moving forward 
in your career? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Until I came to you, I would, something would trigger some grief or a memory of either David's death or my brother's death or my parents' death or my sister-in-law's death, who I haven't mentioned. She was married to Alex before that. She was married to my brother, a very wonderful woman. And when I would think about their loss and the grief, I'd distract myself. And I found even in counselling, which I had some of, I would distract myself. And one of the things that I like very much about you is except in one session where we both agreed we were a little bit off, you kept me back and brought me back every time I would slip off and start storytelling or avoid sitting with the grief. And because of your very good skills and your perseverance, I was able to really sit with the grief and do our bits of homework with sincerity and with focus. And one of the most outstanding bits of homework was to sit with my daughter and talk about my needs. And she was amazing because I hadn't been able to ask her what I needed because I thought she's got so much on her plate. And the lockdown has been hard for her because she's got she's had to homeschool her children as well as work, as well as dealing with a marriage that's not going smoothly. And as a result, I just find I'm much more focused. And, for example, yesterday I spent quite a few hours sorting out a big lot of tax papers and other papers. They're all over the dining room table right now, but mm -hmm. they'll get into the tax box but before the 30th of June ready for the tax man. And I found it the easiest to sort that I ever have because now my mind is clearer, my home is clearer, my head is clearer. So the ability that you have taught me and I'm going to continue myself is that when the sadness comes, to sit with it. And it wasn't just you that helped me do that. It was also my son because at mm -hmm. one point I shared with him the fact that I couldn't sit with the grief and he gave me a beautiful technique, which I'm going to share right now, which you also liked when you heard it, and that is don't avoid it, mum. Sit with it, but go in your head above your body and look down on the grief and just acknowledge it and nod to it and somehow that made it completely different because when I went sort of almost out of body looking down on me holding the grief, I could tolerate it. Mm -hmm. And then it just sort of like stayed and then gently moved and it stayed and it moved and it was a completely different experience than just going, oh, I think I'll think about my shopping list or I think I'll knit or I'll watch telly or take yeah. the dogs for a walk because those are distractions, whereas sinking into it, and one of the things you helped me with is that we both realised that even if I got sad, 
I won't get so depressed that I won't come out of it. I'm not the sort of person that's going to stay and sink into a depression that's Mm life-threatening, that's going to end me up in hospital or unable to function or to use the technical term catatonic. Yeah. You need to get up to be catatonic. Um, And that my sense of humour and sense of being able to laugh at myself You can always bring yourself out of it if you've reached the point where it's intolerable. But by sitting with it, by sitting with it, you're working through it. Mm -hmm. By avoiding it, you're basically not. So it's like a bit of like a bad smell. It won't go away until you get rid of the source of the bad smell. You just hang around. And also the other analogy is that it will, Press you down, you know the lightheadedness that I feel since our work together is as a result of not feeling weighed down by grief and clutter as much. Uh-huh. I mean, it's still a process. We're not we're not through it, baby. <laughs> we only get through it when we're dead, and then it's a bit late. You know, you missed the train by then. Exactly. It's all it's- over. It's all over, <laughs> Beethoven. When you're dead, you don't have to worry anymore. You're gone. You may as well deal with it while you're still able to, even if it's 26 years later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I like how you said it's it's not something that we get over. It'll it'll keep popping up, keep coming. But as we learn to sit with it and acknowledge it and say, hi, you're my friend, Grief. I don't like you, but I acknowledge that you're here. You have something to teach me. What can I learn from you today? Exactly. You're my friend. And um, the clutterer that I had before this one, the declutterer, no, I'm the clutterer, they're the declutterer, um, she said, when I said, oh, I better attack the book, she said, they're not your enemy. The clutterer is not your enemy. It's your friend. So don't see it as attacking it like as if it's a war. And that was significant. But, yeah, I'm not going to attack it. I'm just going to eat away at it. That's amazing. I love that analogy. Um, Another thing that you've mentioned was looking at your grief more holistically. Tell us more about that and what that process has been like for you. Well, as you probably realize, there's a complete contradiction between compartmentalizing and being holistic. Mm Mm-hmm. But that is life. That is human nature. We are a bundle of contradictions. So holistically means that I can be grieving and get on with the meal. I can be grieving and take the dogs for a walk. Mm-hmm. I can be sad and go and have a bath. You know, we're complex and we're simple human beings. We're very similar and yet all of us is unique. So what we need to do to change is to go to experts like you and to basically, I'm going to use the mountain climbing. You know, Mm. you can't get to the other side of the mountain by tunnelling through. That takes years and Even trains have a big machine to help them tunnel through mountains and rock. Right. 
Now, you can try and climb straight up the steep hill, but that's very hard and you might fall off. Mm-hmm. Even if you've got good climbing skills, it's a very hard way to do it, to try and go straight up with it and deal with it quickly and get to the top if that's your aim. But the best way is the way they build roads, which is either to go around and take the long way but keep going mm-hmm. or to zigzag up the mountain. Now and again with cars, you know, with tunnels or with um you know, with with boats, it's using locks and so on. But the point is, there are really no shortcuts. That's what I'm trying to say. You can't get to the other side either by tunneling through yourself or by racing up the steep side and down the other side. You need to realise that it will take time and effort Mm -hmm. and that you should probably follow the path that other people have made. And don't think that you have to do it with your own path and your own, like, there's nobody there to help you. There's always help. Sometimes it costs money. Sometimes it costs energy. But no pain, no gain. You've got to realise that you're going to hurt and cry and feel shit, but that it doesn't last forever. And if you deny it and don't welcome it and embrace it, it's going to be around like that bad smell. It doesn't go away. The dog poo, when they poo inside, someone's got to clean it up. Yeah. Um, So much is resonating with me about that mountain metaphor. It is a long process and it does take time. It does take work. And the view at the top is spectacular. And you can do it on your own. And you can find somebody to support you and walk with you on the journey or help you through it. And it takes, it takes an investment in yourself. Because without that investment, a lot of times we'll stop climbing. Oh, it's too hard. I'm not going to do it. I'll never get there. It takes believing in ourselves and trusting in our guides and doing the work. It takes all of it together. Totally agree. What have you learned in your journey? Like, if I could ask your, your number one lesson that you've learned about your journey, your grief journey so far, what would it be? That when you do the work, when you stop rushing around and avoiding, when you sit with it, and that's why I'm also now meditating, it shifts. Mm-hmm. And it shifts in a way that is better for your soul and for your body and for your spirit that if you sink into the abyss it's not an abyss uh it's a bit like sorry i've got full of metaphors abseiling 
when, the first time, in fact, the only time I've ever sailed was when Noam was 10 in Scouts and uh, he didn't want to go over the cliff. He was petrified and he said, Mum, I'm only going to do it if you do it. So there I was on the edge of the cliff with the harness around me and as you go over, you get to that point of ridiculousness because you go beyond what your body and mind tell you is safe. But the ironic thing is that once you go beyond it, you then find yourself on the cliff with your feet bouncing down the cliff, quite safe, quite elated, quite triumphant, because you've gone through the barrier of fear and disbelief to trust. So that's what I think. Now I think I'm very pleased with myself because I think my analogy got me there. Um, trusting the process, trusting you, trusting myself allows me to sink into the apparent danger of the abyss of depression, mm -hmm. which in fact turns out to be not an abyss, but with a harness and elation and bouncing off the wall, going through the process. So have you done abseiling? I haven't. You have but to. But it, it you sounds have to amazing. Have that experience of going over the cliff to the point of trusting the harness and the ropes and then about two seconds later you're like in an L but you can't get there until you go over. And then as soon as you go over, your feet will go forward and you'll end up in the L shape bouncing off the cliff or the building. And it's divine. And the funny thing about Noam that day at 10 is that once he, and I looked up at him and I said, you're next. We couldn't get him off the cliff. You know, he'd go down and then he'd come up and then he'd go down and then he'd come up. And <laughs> Time to pack up, Sunny Jim. <laughs> so I think the best metaphor for grief is abseiling and going up the mountain. Mm -hmm. a, they're both mountain metaphors, baby. Yeah. See, you, uh, the picture behind you is a watchtower, you know, one of the beacons for the ships. Yeah. Abseil down that. That would Abseil be amazing. down a lighthouse. That would be amazing. And it is. And that's what the process of dealing with grief is all about. So you go up, you get harnessed, you have something to make sure that you're safe. Counselor, book, bed, husband, friends, and off you go over the edge. Uh -huh. And you don't die. The parachute does open. Yeah, yeah. How would you say that your grief work has impacted you in other areas of your life, like outside of the grief work? Yeah, very much so. Um, I have an accountability partner and we meet once a week and we both market ourselves separately, but by being together in the house, it's our marketing time. Mm -hmm. And I send emails and I contact schools and businesses and 
I have been working on LinkedIn and it's all helping. It's all helping. I think I'm I think I'm doing everything a bit better. I've been giving speeches with Rostrum and I have a partner who I meet once a week online as well and we give each other topics. And she said to me last time, you know that you're getting better and better. And I just had some clients who I had eight years ago and I had um, two sisters just finish their third session this week. Uh-huh. And they said to me, it's, it's, well, it was only just the two of them last time they were in a group thing. They said um, this was even better than eight years ago. That's amazing. So I think that the payoffs when you can face pain are huge. And I think when you avoid the pain, it's still there. That's the thing. You know, if you haven't eaten away at the cake of your grief, and unfortunately the cake keeps on getting not eaten up completely. Yeah. Um, it's still there. And even if it grows mold and it's yellow and it's dripping with germs, it's still there. So I don't mean you should gobble it up because it won't be gone, but I don't I don't know. It's a bit like the never ending story. Mm-hmm. You know, the more you read, the more there is. Yeah. And you can't read all the books in the world, but if you don't read every night, you ain't gonna get through your chunk of 10,000 books. So how would you, what would be your advice to somebody who is struggling with the enormity of there's so much that I have to learn. There's so much mountain ahead of me. Um, I'd say to them, get in touch with Jenny Diltz and start because she'll take you through the process and help you at your pace and with her skills and that you'll be so glad you did. I'm sorry, you didn't ask for a plug, but you didn't say I couldn't. I left it up to you to to do what you wanted. So thank you for that plug. It's an unexpected surprise. Well, I I, I think the main thing about when you're feeling overwhelmed is bloody, I'm Australian, we're allowed to swear, bloody ask for help. Don't think that you're an island entire into yourself. John Donne told us, no man is an island entirely to himself. Get help. Put your hand up. Yeah. If you can't afford a Jenny or professional, our government anyway, gives you 10 counselling sessions free. So get help. Do something about your stuckness or the size of the cake that you think you've got to eat. Yeah. And that's the whole thing with depression, that when you're depressed, it's like walking in concrete. So you don't quite know how to put the first foot forward because you're just stuck in it. Mm -hmm. But even in concrete, they can break it up with a machine, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It's more like being stuck in jelly, actually, I reckon, not concrete. Because it's a bit gooey and it's a bit painful, but... It's not solid. You can shift it. Yeah. I'm full of metaphors, aren't I? Makes life more interesting. (laughs) And you're a public speaking coach anyway, so it's good. Got to paint pictures, awesome, and use lots of alliteration. 
Yeah. So we're almost out of time. Um, what would be your biggest piece of encouragement other than ask for help? Yeah, because I was going to say we've done that. Um, actually, there's something I want to add, and it's sort of obvious, is that my relationship with virtually everybody is better than it was before I started with you. I'm communicating better. I'm listening better. I'm more focused on them. The other, just yesterday, um, a girlfriend rang. No, I rang her and she picked up. And the first thing I said was, oh, wow, you picked up. I usually get the answering machine. And she said, why are you so negative? You always seem to start the conversations lately negatively. And I said, stop. That's what you heard. What I actually intended was pleasant surprise. And I don't know why you heard that, but please don't accuse me of being negative because I'm the most positive person you should know. So it was delight, not anger or telling you off. So, no, I don't accept. Um, all my relationships, I think, are better. And I'm much better, I think, like in the reason I told that quick story about that phone call is that she wanted to tell me I was being negative and I wouldn't have it because I knew I wasn't. So in, I didn't attack her. I just said, no, no, that's not what I meant. That's what you heard. And um, I'm delighted that you've picked up. And then I added 80% of the time when I ring you, your phone goes on to message. So this mm -hmm. time it didn't, and I was commenting on it in a pleased way. Yeah. Let's move on. So what I think I've now got the ability to do very, very clearly is accept if I just say I had intended it as a put down, I would have said, yeah, well, that's how I feel. I'm a bit pissed off, you know, with you, but I wasn't. So I think I'm much clearer about saying what I mean and meaning what I say and not being mean when I say it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I live by. And the other thing that I think about your question, which I hadn't forgotten, is my other famous Hillel saying, which most Jewish people know, but it's brilliant. And I live by that three sayings as well, those three sayings as well which is if I'm not for myself, who will be? Mm -hmm. If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So the sooner someone gets help with their problems, their grief, their confusion, their stuckness, the sooner they're likely to find a path. And besides asking for help, I believe that a spiritual faith in either your God or nature or something higher than yourself is absolutely necessary to get through life. We are not just flesh and blood. We are also spirits. Mm -hmm. And if we think that there's no God or nothing to believe in, then I think that we actually find life Harder, And I, I know religion has done some dreadful things and people have killed religion and we're all guilty of, you know, not always being peaceful and loving. But the way forward is 
to be both a good listener and a good speaker and mm. to say your truth and to listen to other people's truth because tolerance and not going to extremes is one of the largest challenges in our world. There's too many people who are too fanatical left and right who not only won't listen to the other side, they won't even be in their company. And uh, I like to think that I will at least listen to someone who has a polar opposite view. Mm-hmm. And I think the process of the grief work has helped me be a better listener and speaker. Why do you think that's so? It's all to do with having more space in the mind. Once you work through things and once you clear away physical things, there's more room for what you currently want to focus on. It's not cluttered. Mm -hmm. And grief can clutter you and material things can clutter you. And also fear. We haven't talked about fear, and I'd like to perhaps, as our time's up, finish with fear. Um, What is fear? Depends on who you ask. Well, I think the thing about fear is that if it gets very, very big, it freezes. Yes. And it's all of the what ifs. Uh Now, my current Mr. Field told me one time, and he's absolutely right, that the things that we fear often don't happen and it's the ones we weren't expecting that do. Yeah. So don't worry about, oh, I'm afraid, like in my case with public speech, they're all looking at me. I mean, what the hell do you want? Do you want them to be looking away? They're all judging me. Yes, they are. And if you give a good damn talk and you're clear and understand you, the judgment will be you're bloody good at what you just delivered. So stop thinking about and fearing what they will say and think about you and focus on what you want to say and give to your audience. And Mm -hmm. if you do that, everybody's a winner. Yeah. And and you, when you're a counsellor and you're best at it, you are totally listening. I always felt from the moment we logged on together, and even though your children would sometimes be in and out and up the stairs and so on, or there'd be technical problems, you were focused on me listening to me and bashing for me. And when I went off track, you'd say, you want to come back, you know, except for the one time which we both were off. Yeah. Have one more free session because of that. (laughs) (laughs) Always be cheeky. Cheeky brings the, the lighter side into it. Because grief can be yeah. a very heavy, heavy topic. And in my sessions with you, I, I don't think there was one session that I didn't laugh with you. And you've got to laugh not only at yourself, but at life's ridiculousness. If you think about it, we're the only animals that are articulate and can think both past and future and plan. And yet... There are more unhappy humans than animals. Animals just get on with it. They eat, they screw, they die. You know, they fight, they die. We, we have to have palaces and cars. And I mean, I just want to perhaps use my car as an example because I just picked it up yesterday. 
because somebody smacked into the front of it and owned up in the supermarket car park. Young girl, first accident, and I had to console her and hug her because she was in tears. Uh-huh. But she owned up to it and her boyfriend um, had the insurance policy and not only was my car repaired, I took an Uber to get the replacement car, which was gorgeous, and then I had to just fill it up with petrol. Everything was free. You know, I didn't pay for the hire car. I didn't pay for the repair. I didn't have an access. Everything went smoothly. And my car looks better. They completely replaced the front panel, which was wonderful, and washed it all inside and out. And I want to send the girl a message saying, yeah, it cost me two hours of travel yesterday to by the time I left, picked it up, got to the hire place, got to the um, car place and drove home. Mind you, I did some jobs on the way. Mm-hmm. Her attitude of taking responsibility and my attitude of being grateful to her was a win-win-win. And I think that's my final message, that if you're owning up to your problem, whether it's grief or life or work or whatever, and you work at it and you get help and you persevere and you believe in yourself, that's that's actually something we haven't talked about, that self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think I've got more of it. I think I'm more myself than I've ever been. And as you can see from my purple hair and earrings and phone and blah, 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 you know, if you've got self-confidence, almost everything is possible as long as it isn't self-arrogance. Yeah. Still be humble, still be appreciative of breathing and living and and being part of a democracy, for Christ's sake. Let's finish on jolly. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite things to do as a coach is to see the transformation that can happen in people's lives. And it always amazes me and never surprises me at the same time. Because I've seen the transformation that's happened in my own life and what can transpire when we put work and self-confidence and self-belief and support people and perseverance and gratitude. Yeah, those together. are the key things. I think you need all of them. Mm-hmm. And, and the one that we haven't said, not just self-belief, but self-love. If you don't love yourself, warts and all, and work on the things that you know you don't like about yourself, then don't expect the rest of the world to love you easily. Mm-hmm. And my dad said something beautiful when I was single and wondering if I was ever going to get married, and I was only 21 and I was already then engaged soon after that, broke that one off, thank God. He said, it's not a question of finding the right person, my darling. It's a question of being the right person. So just work on being yourself and life will find you. It'll just all happen. Absolutely. And as we, we work on being the best version ourselves, it encourages others to do the same and lifts yeah. them to be their best version of themselves. Totally. Awesome. I Thank thoroughly you so enjoyed much. this. Yeah, and I feel honored that you've asked me to get up early on my Sabbath to share my story. Uh, I think I've 
talked a lot more than I normally do. And I'd like to thank you for being my grief counsellor. And I'm not sure if the expression is to love your grief, but I think that that's what one of the main things you've taught me and that it's an ongoing process and that if I ever decide I want to do another eight sessions, there'll be another eight hours of work that we could do together because it's never over until the fat lady sings. And I don't know why the fat lady should ever sing because these days the opera singers are not fat, but it's a bit racist, isn't it? It's a bit, no, prejudiced. It's not over until you're dead. That's right. It's not over till you're dead. <laughs> so thank you, Jenny, and thank you, anyone who watches. And, I, and life is a journey without a beginning and without an end. It just keeps going because we'll drop off when we're ready, when God says so, and others hopefully will have our DNA and legacy. And you've got five children, so you're going to have a lot of legacy, baby. <laughs> And I'm building it every day in the conversations that I have both at home and professionally. Every day is a gift to me where I get to share and receive. Beautiful. So good luck. And from down under, it's getting bloody cold. And I'm going to go and even though I've got my electric rug, I'm ready for some hot coffee. Wonderful. Thank you again, Judith, for joining us. Just as a quick reminder, where can people find you? www.directspeech.com.au or shoot me an email to judith at directspeech.com.au and I'm on LinkedIn. I have a lot of followers and a lot of people I follow. So if you're in business, you should work with LinkedIn and you never know who you're going to meet on LinkedIn. Amazing. Thank you, Judith. If you enjoyed this, join us next time. More of my work can be found on my website, grievingcoach.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Jenny Diltz hyphen grieving coach. So have a fantastic day and happy grieving. To learn more about what I do at Grieving Coach, visit my website, grievingcoach.com, and sign up for my email newsletter. I send out tips, publication, and upcoming events regularly. Until next time, remember that all of our experiences make us who we are, and that you are known and loved in more ways than you could ever imagine. Your voice matters, so share your story. Mm -hmm.